Well, good morning, church family. It's, uh, it's wild to think we are only two weeks away from going through every letter that Paul wrote to churches and to individuals just this week and next week, and we've looked at all of them. I said at week one of this series that our hope is by the end of this series that all of us would read the Bible better. And not only that we would be able to read the Bible better, but that we would be able to respond and to engage with God's word better. And I I hope that's been the case for us throughout this summer series. And I desperately hope that's the case for us this morning. That we learn about God's word and we can respond in new ways. As we move towards this week's letter, Titus, I was thinking about how often cities will have a slogan or, or a catchphrase that expresses a lot about its culture and what that place feels is important. I'm sure there's some that maybe you're familiar with, you know, some well-known ones like what happens in Vegas stays, yeah, that says something about that city and that's all I'm going to say about that, Okay. Or maybe, maybe you're familiar with I Heart New York. I Heart New York, that's right. Um, some countries will pay a lot of money to consultants and marketing agencies to give them a slogan. So Sweden, they spent a quarter of a million dollars a number of years ago to an agency to come up with a slogan for them. And what they got in return for that massive sum of money was, visit Sweden. <laughs> I'd feel ripped off. Uh, In in 2015, Okotoks, some of you may know this because you may live there. They had this really catchy slogan that they plastered all over for their summer campaign. Okotoks, their slogan was, there are a number of things to do in Okotoks. (laughs) Uh, I saw one person comment, it's like, Okotoks, twice as okay as the Okanagan. I thought that was pretty good. (laughs) Or Calgary. Anyone know what Calgary's is? Be part of the energy. That's right. Perhaps the most outrageous one I've heard anywhere is the city that calls themselves the city of champions. Edmonton? What? No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> although I did. In, 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 I was looking at this morning, Ed, or this week, Edmonton has changed their slogan, which means they are now the former city of champions. <laughs> And doesn't that just feel a whole lot better for us? Okay, why am, why am I doing this? Because slogans speak into what the city and the place and the people think of itself. It expresses something about the cultural reality of that place. And I would imagine if I were to go around to most of us in this room, and if I were to ask, do you want to reach our culture, our place with the hope, the message of Jesus, most of us would say, yeah, I'd love to influence this place for Jesus. And then if I were to say, well, how are you going to do that? Most of us would be like, I don't really practically know. And that question is what the entire book of Titus is all about. Titus as short as it is, displays for us Paul's message to Titus on how to reach a place with the story of Jesus. Titus is Paul's missionary strategy. So it has a lot of really good and helpful and important things for us to look at. Here's what we read in Titus 
1 verse 4, it says, To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul left Titus in Crete to finish up the ministry and to appoint leaders for the church. So understanding Crete is really important to understanding Titus. And as a bonus, Crete is really interesting. Crete's a large Greek island, and it's beautiful. It's a stunning island. You know, it's like anyone here is like, I wish someone would leave me in Crete. Lord, I've heard of your ways. Do it again, right? Leave me there. It's beautiful. But Crete is not just a beautiful place. It's a strategic place. It's where the Aegean and the Mediterranean seas meet. So if you're doing any major travel from west to east, north to south, via the sea, Crete was an important place to stop. And all of those little places around it were ports. So it was a really easy place to access all over. But it wasn't just beautiful, and it wasn't just geographically important. Crete is very important historically. If you've learned or read anything about Greek mythology, then you've learned about Crete. Crete's where Zeus was said to have been born and buried. Zeus was the king of the pantheon of the gods, the ruler of heaven. Zeus was the one with like the beard, the muscles, the dignified look, the lightning bolt the chief Greek god. He was one of the most well-known, one of the most powerful gods. He was sometimes called the father of all the gods because he was father to Hercules, Apollo, Artemis, Athena, Dionysus, a whole lot of these Greek gods that structured the culture of Greece in so many ways during this time when Paul was writing this letter. Now, when we read ancient documents about Zeus, Zeus was famously deceptive and wicked. Zeus was known to take the form of husbands that were away working or fighting, and he would seduce the wives that were left behind. That's how he became the father of all the gods. So Zeus, the local god, the chief god of Greek history, was born on Crete, was the hero of Crete, and he was known as a liar. So it should come as no surprise for us that one of the Greek words for liar was kratizo. Kratizo, Crete. Do you see the interplay? Do you see the connection here? The people on Crete became so known as liars, they made it the word for the language. Maybe that's why verse 12 says, One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Can you imagine if one of our modern day prophets wrote that about us? Like Taylor Swift? And we are liars, 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 (laughs) brutes and gluttons. We, right? That wouldn't work. That's not going number one. And yet, the prophet was held, like, teaching, we are known as liars, brutes, and gluttons. And not only were they identified in that way, 
But Crete, because of its strategic location, was an island full of mercenaries for hire. There were pirates, armies of pirates that you could hire because they could go out really quick, come back really quick. Are you getting the picture of Crete? This dark, complex, historically packed place. And Paul's like, here's how we're going to reach it. Now, parallels to our world or not with Crete, the question remains, how do we live and love the place that we are in? How do we do that? And I think Titus has a lot to offer. I've said frequently throughout the series and other times that often the opening few words, the parts that we often skip over in these letters, provides the key or the clues to read the whole letter well. Paul does that in all of his intros, little tiny seeds that will grow throughout the letter. I've said it a bunch. I want to demonstrate today what I actually mean by that and to help us read these intros. Titus 1 verse 1, it says, Paul a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time. The opening two verses. The first five words there are key though. When it comes to going to places of darkness, to loving our neighbors, the first five words Words are key. Paul, a servant of God. Servant of God. That is the only time in any of his letters that Paul refers to himself as servant of God. Normally, it's servant of Jesus or servant of Christ or or, or some version of that. But here, it's servant of God, which, which may come across as an inconsequential kind of switcheroo But servant of God was a loaded phrase that God's people would have immediately recognized. Because servant of God was the phrase that was used to describe all of the people in God's story. Servant of God was the term used for Abraham and Moses and David. The name that was used for Daniel and the prophets So when Paul introduces himself as servant of God, the readers would have been like, oh, he's anchoring in this all in the story of God. Because this was like a, a, a phrase that they all knew represented the story God was writing through his people. So when Paul says this, he's saying to Titus, in light of what you are going to face, in light of the difficulties of Crete, in light of the hardships, just remember the story you're a part of. Just remember the one who sends you. Remember the one who in the beginning turned darkness and dark places into light by his voice because he is sending you. And he's still writing the story, Titus. That's who's sending you. At First Alliance Church, it's the same for us. The story that God is writing, he still wants to write through us. And he wants to send us to go and to love. From the beginning until now, God seeking and saving and restoring and redeeming and reconciling. 
The story of God is not just some abstract idea. The story of God is that he is making all things new. Everything that is wrong, he is making right. Everything that is broken, he is healing. Everything that has been stolen will be returned. Everything lost will be found. That's the story God is writing. And in this room, this morning, online, wherever we may be, there are all kinds of places of brokenness, all kinds of things that have been lost or stolen, all kinds of wrongs. And God is saying, it doesn't have to end there. I'm still writing my story. And I'm inviting you to join me in this story. And when we get that in our bones, to the core of who we are, it changes everything. It changes how we look at this world. It changes how we look at our neighbors. It changes how we look at ourselves because we know the story. We know how it began. We know what went wrong. We know who, who's making it right. And we know how the story ends. So we can face all kinds of things when we know the story that we're living. Paul, a servant of God, remember the story that God is writing with and through you. And from there, Paul then says, in the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time. Remember the Cretan value, Kretizo, the story of Zeus, their God who lies to get what he wants. Do you notice the shot? Do you notice when Paul provides a scathing critique of the cultural assumptions of Crete? Oh yeah, our God, by the way, doesn't lie. He tells the truth. And he has promised eternal life from the beginning. And it's being offered to us. And in that moment, this letter moves from just being pastoral advice to being a subversive act showing how the gospel right-sizes cultural assumptions and cultural values. Our God does not lie. And I just want to say this morning to all of us, our God still does not lie. He tells the truth. He is utterly and thoroughly reliable and trustworthy, which means every promise he has ever given we can hold on to. When he promises to be with us, he will be with us. When he promises he's still writing the story and it's not finished yet, he's still writing the story. And we can bank our lives on that. God does not lie. He never has. He never will. And so for some of us this morning, one of the best things we could do is just take up this book and start memorizing and reading the promises of God, reminding ourselves of what God has said to be true, knowing he doesn't lie, holding on to these promises for our lives, holding on to these promises for what we face, holding on to these promises for our kids or our grandkids or our neighbors or our coworkers or the, the students in Guatemala holding on to these promises for our city, for whatever darkness we may be facing, holding on to the promises of God who does not lie. I told you the intros are packed. 
From there, I read it earlier, but Paul said to Titus, I'm sending you to Crete to finish up the ministry that needs to be done still and to put elders, to put leaders in place. A few weeks ago, I was teaching on 1 Timothy. And uh, if you were there, you know, I'm like, why don't we just run straight at the most, one of the most controversial parts of the New Testament? And uh, well, good news, church. Um, I'm still here. Um, at least I hope you think that's good news. I think it's good news. Um, we made it through First Timothy, this, this complex part. And so because we did it then, I figured, why don't we do it again? Why don't we look at another part of the New Testament that has caused so much um, debate, so much controversy, so much conflict, and, uh, and, and so much difficulties through the years? And so um, let's do it, all right? Um, the section I'm about to read has been used by many, many churches, mostly in in North America, to exclude women from certain positions and saying it should only be men. Now, this part I'm about to read, it's personal for our church because we went through this process last year and over the couple of years before that through a period of discernment and prayer before we affirmed women as elders. But I want us to look at this. Because the Bible is God's word and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, training, and building us all up in the faith. And so I want us to look at this passage. Titus 1.6, it says, An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. When we were looking at 1 Timothy and the role of women and men, 1 Timothy's challenge, if you remember, was that there was a lot of bad teaching from within the church. Inside the church, there was all of this complexity that was wreaking havoc and distorting lives. Titus's challenge is not from within the church. Titus's challenge is that the members of the church are being more formed by Crete than by Christ. Titus was inside out problems, or Timothy's was inside out, Titus's was Crete was getting in way too much. And so he gives a list of the kinds of individuals that Titus is to put into positions of leadership. And I'll say this again, because I think it's important to say there are faithful, godly men and women in this room who have followed Jesus, that love the scriptures, that are seeking to be faithful to him in every way of their lives, likely in this room, that wrestle through this passage. No matter how you read what I just read, there are questions. This is just one of those passages that makes it really, really difficult to say the Bible is clear. No matter how you read it, it creates questions. It all comes from how do we read this list? When it says an elder must be faithful to his wife, does that mean only a male can be an elder? It all comes from how we read this list. If we read this list exclusively, that elders must do and be the things on that list. So they must do the action and be in identity, you know, faithful to his wife. 
or they must have children that are living this kind of way, and on and on and on. If you must do those roles, and if you must be those roles, that makes sense to read it that way. You must be a husband, and you must be faithful to your wife, and you must be a father. But then the elder must be married. And the elder must have children in order for their kids to be of good reputation. I think it's fair if you read it that way. I think that's fair. But the challenge and the question that then comes to us is that Titus wouldn't qualify for the role. And neither would Timothy. And neither would Paul. Because as far as we know, none of them were ever married. And they didn't have children. So they couldn't be and do those things. Because they weren't. So if you must do and be those things, they couldn't. And I, 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 it creates a hard question. Why would Paul instruct these guys to set up churches where none of them would qualify for the role? And by the way, Jesus wouldn't either as an unmarried man without children. It creates questions that must be answered. On the other hand, what's this list about then? How do we read this list? In a place like Crete that valued and celebrated Zeus seducing women, in a place that was being more formed by Crete than by Christ, this list could be way more about the character of the person than anything else. The exhortation and the emphasis being on the kind of people, being on marital fidelity for those who are married rather than promiscuity and polygamy because we see all kinds of leaders in the church. Paul exhorting, hey, if you can stay single, that's a good thing. Do that for the sake of the church. Not saying you have to be married to be in these positions. Perhaps for those who are married, the exhortation is on marital fidelity over and against promiscuity or polygamy. When we read through this list, there's not a single male pronoun used. When we read it, like when, when I read through this through the NIV, you know, you'll read phrases like he must hold firmly or he must be hospitable. We read these like he and these hymns in there. But when Paul wrote this, he didn't do any of that. It was just like read like a bullet point grocery list. Like what you have when you go to a superstore or Costco, right? It's just blameless, not given to this, hospitable. It's just this list. English add in the, the, the pronouns for our reading. So unless Paul was excluding himself and his team and Jesus from the role, saying you must do and be these things, we can read this as a list that provides the kinds of characters for the people that are to be involved. Ancients would call this a vice and virtue list. Avoid these vices. Embody these vice and virtue. Avoid these vices. Embody these virtues. There's so much more to say about this. We spent months going through this as a church family. Hopefully, that's a helpful starting point. Um, from there, the teaching then. Paul starts, you know, Titus, you're sent in the story. Here's the kind of leaders of the church. And then Paul turns Titus to the whole church, to the members. This is what he says. 
For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He just starts to exhort the people, live well. Have you experienced, have you tasted and seen the grace of the Lord Jesus? Because that's going to teach you to say no to ungodliness and the worldly passions. You hold on to the truth of who God is. And some of us, when we read through that list, like teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And we're like, I've said yes to ungodliness and worldly passions a few too many times. And things are being identified But for us, as we read through that list and through the rest of the Titus, the letter to Titus, which I recommend we all do this week, maybe you're reading through this and you can see some of the areas and you're like, you know what? I used to struggle with that, but not so much anymore because I have experienced the grace and the kindness of the Lord. And Paul is sending Titus and Titus is sending to the leaders and the leaders are going to the church. And I just want to continue that to us today and say, if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and kind and you've experienced his grace in your life, then you are sent to the people around you. There are battles, there are struggles, there are difficulties that you have gone through and navigated your way through that people are in right now. And they could really benefit from what you have to offer from your life. Because you know the kindness of God. There's all kinds of opportunities. Maybe it's Celebrate Recovery. Maybe it's Alpha. Maybe it's kids ministry, youth ministry. Maybe it's greeting, being an usher. I'm not sure what your story is. Maybe it's somewhere in the community going overseas. I don't know what your story is, but I do know that God's kindness wants to send us to the world around us. When we read through Titus, we read through, okay, the story God's writing. We read through church leaders. We read through the church life together. <clears throat> and some of us, you know, we read through this and then we just, we're like, okay, but what happens when that doesn't work? I've been trying day after day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, and I haven't really gotten anywhere Crete's still Crete in my life, Kyle. What now? What do I do? I think Titus 2 verse 13 has two of the most beautiful words in the whole of the New Testament. Simply this. Blessed hope. Blessed hope. For all of us who have allowed God to write our story, we are in the in-between of who we were and where we're going. And in the in-between, we have a blessed hope to hold on to. What's this blessed hope? It's the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We know the story, and we know that Jesus is coming again. 
And so for all of us who are trying to live the story of God and to trust Jesus, trying to reach those around us with the message of Jesus and who feel like it just isn't happening, feel like it just isn't working, who feels like this world can just be crushing and hard. And the more we try to follow Jesus, the more we get hurt or left behind. We are those who hold on with the blessed hope that the glory of our Lord Jesus will appear again. The story that God is writing is the story of transforming the world that was into the world that is coming. And he wants us to participate in that writing of the story with him. And we have the blessed hope to hold on to. So how do we do this? Living with the blessed hope, I understand. Okay, but how do we practically show up to the world around us? How do we love and influence the city and our culture to the question at hand? Well, as we think about following Jesus in life on the narrow path, I think there's two ditches we can fall into. There's two ditches. And the first ditch is when we think about loving and serving the culture around us, we think in terms of culture wars. We think the world around us is uh, a fight that we have to show up in. We're fearful of losing power. We're fearful of losing prestige. So we fight for influence. We fight against others. We fight against, we fight, we fight, we fight the government. We fight our neighbors. We fight these, we fight, 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 fight. Culture war, culture war. You know, there's a video that went viral recently of this pastor who had a bat and he taped a Bible to it and he was just going around on stage, swinging at all these things he thought were threats to society. And I think any perspective where you just need to, treat this as a, as a weapon to humans is probably not the way of Jesus. One ditch that we can fall into is thinking this world is just a big old culture war. But there's another ditch on the other side. And it's one that I think we are equally at risk of, if not more so. And that's not showing up in a culture fight war mentality it's cultural retreating where we look at the darkness or the difficulty of our world and we just think, I'm just going to retreat from that. And we avoid being present in the culture rather than fight people who think differently, act differently, look differently, believe differently. Rather than fight them, we don't even talk to them because we don't know them because we're never around them because we've just retreated and we're hiding. And we just hang out with people that talk like us, think like us, act like us, believe like us, look like us. In these little greenhouses, actually avoiding the world around us that God loves so very much. And the message of Titus is, you don't need to go with a bat to creep. But you also don't run away. You show up in the world with courage, with love, with grace. Why? Because the kindness of God compels you. Those who follow Jesus should be the most alive citizens on the planet because we know where our real citizenship lies. It's in heaven, so we can show up in this world. 
because we know the story God's writing. We don't need to fight. We don't need to run. We can just show up to love. The Bible Project video on Titus says this. Christianity is most compelling when it looks similar on the surface, but it is based on different value systems from devotion to a totally different God. It doesn't look identical. It looks similar because we're in this world. We're in this place. But our devotion is to an utterly different God. You may find it interesting in the 2,000 years of the church, the period of time that the church grew most exponentially, it grew 40% decade over decade, was a time in church history when guests weren't even allowed in the building. Guests weren't allowed in. They couldn't show up. You couldn't bring your friend or neighbor into the building. And yet the church was growing 40% year over year. They didn't preach on mission. The first sermon on the Great Commission, Matthew 28, didn't show up for hundreds of years. And yet the church was growing exponentially, decade over decade. And so it wasn't the building that attracted people. It wasn't the music that attracted people. It wasn't the, the, the preacher that attracted people. What caused 40% growth decade over decade over decade was the church members' lives being so utterly compelling because they had been so radically changed by Jesus. They showed up to love. They cared. They went where no one else went. Asking for nothing, giving everything. How can we live and love the world around us knowing that God doesn't lie, he's still writing the story and we are all sent to this world to care for those around us. And when it gets hard, when it gets difficult, when it gets lonely, when it gets scary, we know that we have a blessed hope that the glory of Jesus will appear again and we can hold on to that. No matter what's happening in the world around us, we know God who does not lie has promised as surely as Jesus came, he will come again. As surely as he has spoken in the past, he will speak again. As surely as he has healed, he will heal again. And when we don't know the way forward, we know that God has led his people through the desert before. He'll do it again. As surely as he created this world with endless beauty, he will give us endless life. Just as he was with Daniel in the lion's den, he will be with us in our pits of despair. Just as he was with, with those men in the fiery furnace, he will be with us when it gets hot and hard. Just as surely as he was with David before the giant, he is with you before whatever giant you face. This is the story that God is writing in this world, making all things wrong right. Have you allowed God to write your story? Have you allowed him to be the one that sends, consumes, compels your life. You surrendered your life to him. Have you joined God to be part of the energy of what he's doing here? 
joining his work, joining his mission. Saying, yeah, I'll go. Maybe this morning you feel like I'm less Titus, I'm a lot more Crete. The kindness of God longs to rewrite your story. He's good and kind and gentle and he loves you so much. And the author of life wants to be the author of your life. Say yes to him. Maybe you have said yes and you are the Titus in this letter. Let's not leave it unread. Does God have your yes? I'll go. Please let it be creeks. It's beautiful. But I'll go wherever you send me. I'm in. I'll put down my weapons. I won't bring a bat with a Bible tape to it. And I'm going to retreat from the foxhole. I'm going to retreat. Or I'm going to emerge from the greenhouse. And I'm going to show up to love. And I know it might be hard. And I know I might be hit. And I know I might be, you know, treated poorly. But I know the story. And the blessed hope is stronger than anything else that I may face. You have my yes. Join him in the story that he's writing so that our church must learn to devote ourselves to doing what is good in order to provide for the urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Church, let's not live unproductive lives. Let's join the greatest story that is being written that God wants to write in and through each of us. And I end with the last five words of Titus to every one of us today. Grace be with you all.